This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My topic is faith uh, as a virtue, in particular, faith as an ascetical exercise, and then faith as a, an apologetic or an argumentative exercise. Now, I tried, I thought, I, I, you know how you, when you're asked to speak on a topic generally, your mind gets an intuition about what would be good to speak about? And so you, you, uh, you, so you carve it down and you write it down and then you say, all right, let's go. It's like a water stick, you know, boom, down here, there's water, dig. Well, I did the digging and I found out that um, the topics that I had separated, are kind, they kind of belong together. Every time I started thinking about the ascetical dimensions of the mind and the act of faith, I started thinking about apologetics. And when I started thinking about apologetics, uh, the painful dimensions of that uh, came back into uh, to vision again. So apologetics and ascesis kind of blend together. It's hard to separate them into two talks. So I'm shifting the subject just a little bit, and I'm talking about this with, under the rubric of uh, uh, systematic reflection, that, such as we find in Aquinas. And then I'm, I'll turn to a more concrete mode of exposition, which is examining uh, argument or polemic in the New Testament as both uh, an ascetical purifying exercise, but also as an engagement in apologetic, where you're trying to actually show something to be true by appealing to the mind. All right, so so the first thing we want to talk about in this realm of uh, faith is describing it as a virtue and uh, it's, it's something that is a human perfectant, okay? Um, now that means, if we're going to talk about it as a virtue, we all, that means we have to talk about it as a habitus in St. Thomas. And now, we often misunderstand that. When we hear habitus, we hear habit. And when we hear habit, we hear, um, what would you call it? Um, automatic response, stimulus response. When you hear habit, you hear routine. When you hear habit, you see yourself at your desk. Early, in earlier years, I don't know what you do now, but in earlier years, when you came across a passage that you had to write and just could not write it, uh, blocked by some evil unseen energy, you, uh, you would light a cigarette, you know. Nobody can do that now. It's one of, the, one of the few intrinsically evil acts left in the moral vocabulary. Uh, yeah. Anyway, now I think people don't do that. I think they probably switch on their cell phone or, or divert themselves to a, a, a channel on the Internet. All right. So anyway, but it's the same thing. It happens automatically. Uh, but a habitus isn't like that. What is it then? Well, a habitus is, uh, first of all, not a substance. It's not, some, it's not a thing that exists independently. It's not like this podium. Um, it's more like the color brown on the podium, you know. Brown doesn't exist in itself. Brown only exists as a property of a, of a surface like 
this podium. It's a property then. Okay. It exists for sure. A habitus is real, but it's only real as it abides in something other than itself. Okay, can we get any further? Yeah, uh, it's also about a relation or a relationship. It's quality which is a relation. All right, uh, look at the Latin for this, habitus. comes from Latin, habere, which means to have, to have something. But it also comes, and so, now there are analogical senses of the word to have, of course. You don't have your health the way you have your dog. You don't have either in the way that you have your mind, you know. Uh, there are different, uh, you don't, uh, so, so when you're talking about having, it, it admits of many senses. Uh, there's a special mode of possession, though, that belongs to habitus. It's also tied to sehabere, a reflexive verb, which means to have towards oneself. So habitus, so far, is an accidental quality. It's a property. It, uh, ha amount, it is something not that you are, but that you, so to speak, possess. And what you possess is a relation or a relationship to yourself with respect to flourishing or withering away. Okay? You, you can talk about this as a kind of quality um, because the way um, you have, the relationship that you have towards yourself tells you how you are. It's a, and that, how are you? You know, it's a very common question. Uh, but when people are asking you that, they're asking you to reflect on your overall state of being. Uh, if you were asked, how are you, you wouldn't say, well, you might say, I have a fever, or you might say, I'm hungry, or you might say, I'm famished to read the new book that's been described on, on the New York Review of Books. You can describe yourself in these ways, but all of them, if they're going to be a habitus, have to do with something about you flourishing, being in the state you ought to be, or not being in the state you ought to be. If you say, I've got a fever, it means that your whole comportment, your whole bearing, is um, mal-ordered, at least in that particular respect. Something is wrong, something is missing, something, or something is there that shouldn't be there. Health, St. Thomas talked about as an entitative habitus, which means it's a, um, a way of being, it's a way of, uh, it's a question of how something is with regard to its own flourishing. Now, let's go further. Uh, this is, um, has by, by an analogy, uh, a quantitative dimension. Quality has a quantitative dimension for St. Thomas. Now, this here he's using this with strictly analogical meaning. Um, what do I mean? What is quantity? It's Well, it has to do with extension. And if you're, if you're going to talk about anything with a certain quantity, you're talking about an extension in space. And an extension in space implies two things. It implies 
parts, first of all, I mean, if, if something can be divided, uh, it's, it's got parts, it's divisible. Anything that is, has quantity can be divided. If you've got an inch, you can turn it into half an inch, uh, or you can turn it into a mile. So anyway, um, there is quantitative extension involved in quality, but this also implies the parts which admit of an order between them or among them. If a, uh, it's a thought experiment. Can you if, try to think about a, a totally uh, shapeless extension? Hard to do, isn't it? Um, when you imagine an extension in space, you're talking about some kind of order or relationship between the parts. It doesn't have to be symmetrical, but, that, but as, as long as you make a difference and you put the two parts in relationship to each other, there is some kind of order. All right, now that's, this seems to be and is a useless abstraction until we kind of uh, flesh it out and show what it looks like. Order among parts. All right, you're an alcoholic. You've had trouble with this for years. Um, I can tell you about the order of your life. Or at least I can tell you a good bit of it. Uh, it will hold true across many cases. Uh, if you're an alcoholic and have been struggling with that for a long time, you've probably lost a job. If you have that trouble and you haven't beaten it yet, uh, you've probably lost your relationships because if, if they say alcoholism is a progressive fatal disease, and as it progresses, uh, you become more and more needy or more and more desperate to fulfill uh, the need created by the addiction. So you throw more and more things into it and they cost more and more. First of all, you're late for work and you're late for work rather than not have the drink. Then you um, basically stop going to work for a short period of time to, for the for the sake of the drink, then you're willing to be fired for the sake of the drink. So now you have no money. So what happens then? You need money. Where do you get it? You get it from your relatives. You, if you're married, you go into your spouse's bank account if he or she has one. I, I just need to borrow it for a while. And then you do borrow it and then it's not coming back. So now this relationship is on the starting to teeter. You lose your job, you lose your spouse uh, over time, you lose your friends because they can't trust you anymore. Because, you can't, because your sense of what the truth is depends upon your need, see? So what happens? Your life, there's a kind of order in disorder. I, and on the one hand, it's privation. It's a miss, something is missing that ought to be there. That's the definition of evil. But on the other hand, on the other hand, um, since I can describe it as I've described it and the description holds good over many instances, you'd have to say that there's an order in your life. I could write your biography in terms of your addiction to alcohol. Even when you can't entirely, because we have more than one habitus, you can't um, entirely tell someone's story by one habitus, but you can tell a lot of it. Tennessee Williams, I mean, you wouldn't do any justice to him if you said he was 
an alcoholic, and then that was the end of it. You'd have to say, well, he was a genius alcoholic, okay? Uh, but then you'd have to say that um, there are a couple of habitus. One is writing, one is drinking, and the two of them together make up his life. The, the point is that a habitus, uh, as insofar as it's a quantity and has an order among parts by analogy, this gives you a key to the story of somebody's life. I, if I, if you, I, you tell me your habitus, um, I'll tell you what's important to you, and I can uh, work out how, where your life has been and where it's going. All right. So a habitus, if you could call it as a quantitative dimension, or you could all, also call it uh, the conditions of the possibility of your life story. Okay. Uh, St. Thomas says, in addition to this, that a habitus is, a kind, is something like unto a passion. That is, to the passion doesn't mean emotion here, or uh, strong, effective response. It doesn't mean that. It means it is receptive. If, if you are passive with, something, with regard to something, it means you're receptive to it. It is an impression. Uh, and it may, a habitus makes a strong impression on the person who has it. It means that it's not something that is easily changeable. It's not something that you can, you don't get a habitus easily or quickly, and you don't lose it easily or quickly. It takes a long time to genuinely love literature. It doesn't take a long time to gen, or it takes a long time to genuinely love art. I remember as a kid, sophomore, freshman in high school, it's the, the idea dawned on me that if I could just make some people, namely college girls, think I was interested in art, they would think I was cool. So I actually went a couple of times to the Columbus Museum of Art and looked at paper paintings like this and like this. And it was a, an imitation of a quality that I simply didn't have, you see. So you can fake it. And actually, you could probably spend your whole life faking it. I mean, you know, I mean, that, that we have the capacity to mimic the expected responses. <sighs> this claret was so succulently dry. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> But I can be trained to say it, you know. I think all real learning starts that way. Everybody starts out by being a pseudo-intellectual. If you're lucky, you outgrow that. <laughs> Either by not caring anymore whether people think you're an intellectual or by genuinely becoming one, okay? But you don't. point is you don't become a person of deep reflection overnight, you know? You can fake it, but you can't really be it except through repeated trial and error. So every real art critic begins by starting in some museum and going like this, hoping somebody will be impressed. All right. But you learn, see? You learn. Over time, you pick it up and you say that, no, there really is something here besides my ego. Uh, there's something wonderful here. I should... And then after a while, you forget about your ego and you just fall in love with whatever it is. And then after all that time, you become a, a, someone knowledgeable about the arts. Well, all right, what you can't, so that's what, it, what you mean. And this is also true in the moral sphere. If, you've, if you have 
spent your life being crabby or skinflinty or unfair, uh, you're not going to get rid of it right away. Now, this is a funny thing when we hear, you hear confessions uh, that sometimes uh, people come in and, and they say, Father, I don't know, I just don't know. I made a real good confession last week and I thought I was done with sin. <laughs> and I said, I'm shocked that you're not. <laughs> How could you have failed so spectacularly? <laughs> I didn't really say that. Uh, but, um, but they are surprised, you know? They are surprised when, when they thought they had made a good resolution and they find out that quitting the way they had been, quitting their quality was not such an easy thing. You can repent of the individual act, but repenting of the disposition that gives rise to the act is another matter altogether. Okay. Now, also, um, you don't get rid of it easily, um, but once you have it, you act readily. Just, uh, you know people who, are, who, who run other people down in conversation um, habitually. You know, they're all, there's something always wrong with somebody that they know. Um, this is, um, it's easy for them. It's like rolling off a log. It's also, it also works the other way. If you're generous, if you give to charities, if you go out of your way for the benefit of other people, um, pretty soon you won't even notice that you're doing it. And you'd be embarrassed if somebody said, you're so generous, you don't feel like you're generous, you just feel like a minimally decent human being. You know? But that's because it's gotten deeply rooted in you. Okay, now, as I say, um, these are qualifications on the level of being as a whole. That is to say, this asks, uh, there, are, there are what we would call entitative habitus, which affects us as a whole. Health is the example Thomas gives, uh, but on the supernatural order, this is uh, the, what his reference to grace is. Grace is that habitus which affects us on the level of our nature, equipping us to be close to God. What do we need to have a, uh, a power to be the site of a habitus? Well, it's got to be able to do more than one operation and to do it in more than one way. So, um, you, that's why your growing toenails is never really listed in the catalog of virtues. See? Why not? Because your toenails only do one thing. They grow. They only do it in one way, outward. Uh, there's, no, there's an automatic process. There's no reflection involved in it. The powers do one thing. They do it one way. You don't need a habitus, okay? It's on automatic pilot. You need a habitus with powers that aren't on automatic pilot. That means the mind and the will and also the emotions. The mind, it's free to think about more than one kind of thing. Uh, this very morning, I've been thinking about two subjects vastly different in importance. One was the announcement of the uh, shift of UCLA and USC to the Big Ten. 
uh, an appalling travesty. <laughs> and then I was thinking about the ascetical dimensions of the act of faith. I don't need to tell you which is more important. Obviously, the, the Big Ten's move. <laughs> no, uh, but, but, but it's a different, a different object of thought, and you have to employ different ways of thinking about it. Even with the same object, you can think about it in more than one way. God is the subject of poetry, historical fiction, philosophical reflection, and worship. You know? The same reality can be approached with different, uh, different capacities. This means that the mind is somewhat undetermined. It has an incurable orientation to be what is what is and what is true, but other than that, you can think about any from anything from worms to God and from God back to worms. So that, that's what you need to have a habitus indeterminacy. You also have to have. Um, this is also true in the will. Uh, it has to uh, to be free to will different things. To choose breakfast, to choose to read the paper, to choose to pray, to choose to propose marriage to someone. These are all very different choices, um, but they all can be made in very different ways. I'm thinking about going to the opera. There are many different will acts involved in going to the opera. There's being attracted to it. I like that. There's rustling the paper to see if the tickets are affordable. There's getting closer to execution. There's uh, wondering how you'd get there, bus, cab, limo. Um, then, so you go through all of that. And those, those are all different will acts, you know, wanting, choosing, deliberating, and, and uh, free choice, and enjoying the act after you've done it. All of these are different will acts. So, okay, so those are uh, mind and will are indetermined, and then passion follows mind and will. Our emotions are actually intelligent. They have meaning. Uh, the effective reaction to tragedy has moral significance. Um, there are different kinds of anger. There are different kinds of joy. And they follow upon what the mind has seized and often follow upon what the will has chosen. I tell people in confession uh, if they're having trouble forgiving somebody, we say, will it? Just decide that you have forgiven them. The feelings will follow afterwards, sometimes long afterwards. But the point is that the emotions can be trained by what we know to be true and what we know to be good. Okay, all of this is a way of setting up faith. Um, but faith is a virtue, all right? Where is it? If, if, we, it's a, if it's a virtue, it has to do with the perfection of a power, with orientation to uh, flourishing. Well, it resides in the mind. And its object is God as first truth. I want to talk, say a word about what it means to be the, an object of, a, of, a, of an act of mind or a virtue or of anything else. When we say an object, we mean actually the opposite of what the medievals meant by object. A medieval would have meant by, I mean, a, a, a modern person, when you use the word object, means something out there that is objectively so that doesn't engage me. So 
just the facts, ma'am, means never mind your interest in the case, just describe what happened at the street corner uh, and try to put aside the fact that it was your nephew who was involved, okay? Just the facts. It doesn't engage you except as a witness to what is, okay? That's being objective. And people feel objectified when uh, who they really are is disregarded, their value is disregarded in, in some other uh and some usually morally compromised way. Uh, you're not, I'm not a person to you. I'm simply a cash cow, you know. That's an example of being an object for someone. But for the medievals and for St. Thomas, uh, the word object means something quite different. It means a reality precisely as it engages you. Not as it disregards you, but as it engages you. So we say that faith... Uh, has an object, uh, faith is in the mind, the mind has an object. What is the specific object of faith? Um, well, faith is, uh, faith has an object which is God as truth speaking. Let me back up a bit and uh, approach this from a slightly different angle. Let me ask you a speculative question. Could God have given angels the power of sight? Put it another way. Could God give angels the power of sight if there was nothing in creation except spirits? Suppose God had said when he made the angels, whoa, that's enough. I'm, I'm not going to do any more. He could have. Uh, could, in that, given that hypothesis, could angels have the power of seeing? Answer is no. Why not? Because there's nothing to see, Right? Because there's nothing to see. Uh, there has to be an object for a power before the power can operate. And before the, uh, actually, there has to be an object for a power before the power can even exist. See? Uh, you know, we say that the final cause is a real cause. Uh, by that, I mean the purpose of something dictates whether it exists or not. If you had something genuinely without purpose, you'd have a world that genuinely didn't, couldn't exist, see. At least that's, that's, uh, that's uh, St. Thomas and that's uh, the, the doctrine of the, you know, the four causes. Now, uh, for the modern mind, that simply isn't true. It's axiomatically not true. For the modern mind, things do exist without purpose and it's up to us to invent purpose. But the medievals would have said, no, no, if something is real, it's because some purpose has called it into being. Okay. Now, um, that means that an, an, object, an object is an enabling resource for action. Enabling because there would be no exercise of the power if there were not something in the object or the destination of the act that called for the response. So as I say, no touch can exist in a purely spiritual world. There can be no sense of sight in a world in which there is nothing to see. There can also be no genuine thought in a world in which nothing is real. Isn't that interesting? There can be no genuine thought 
in a world in which nothing has reality. So what then are you doing? Uh, well, it's going, your thought is going to resemble the reality for reasons I'll explain later. And if you think reality is a bottomless, chaotic, senseless surd, then your mind in reproducing this is going to be reduced to a, a kind of an unorganized surd. It, it's, a, uh, it's a very dangerous spiritual place to be. Um, if you don't really have an ontology where the world makes sense in itself, there's going to be nothing for your mind really to respond to as real. And that means that your mind is, uh, your only exercise for your mind is inventing fictions. It's not much, but it's all that's left, you see. It's not much, but it's all that's there. So people are content with uh, projecting what they call their truth. Because it has to be their truth. There isn't any other. All right. Now, uh, what about faith in God? I said that God as first truth is the object of faith. That means that God uh, is the condition of the possibility of there being an act of faith in him. More particularly, God as first truth, speaking, testifying, witnessing, that's the condition of the possibility of an act of faith. See, so that's what I'm saying, that if we're going to talk about the virtue of faith, we have to talk about this as uh, something that God enables and by virtue of his own testimony. Because he's truthful in testimony, I can respond to, to that by accrediting that testimony by an act of assent. Conversely, I can refuse that. Precisely because it's testimony and not overpowering evidence, I can say no. In a way, God puts himself, this is figurative language, but God in a way puts himself at risk when he offers himself to us in that way because we do have the freedom to say no. And he puts us at risk as well. Because, again, for the same reason, uh, when he offers testimony that is not blindingly self-evident, the human creature always has the possibility to say, no thanks. See? And many people do. All right. Now, um, with God as the source of all being, our minds can affirm this without knowing precisely what we mean. In other words, um, there is, I've talked about the, uh, God as the object of faith and that being dependent upon testimony. That it doesn't exhaust, it's not the only way we can know God. Uh, we can know God as the source of all that is. But here we have a knowing without knowing. And this is part of the ascesis of dealing with God as, as an object of our knowledge. We can know him without knowing because we know that what we say is true without knowing precisely what we mean when we make the affirmation. It sounds nonsensical, but I, I think it, it doesn't, it isn't entirely, it isn't nonsensical to say, I know what I say about God is true and yet I'm not sure what I mean when I say it. Take the example, Ferdinand is good. Do you have an idea, do you know what I mean by that? Well, it depends on what Ferdinand is. 
if Ferdinand is your spouse and you tell me Ferdinand is faithful, I have a pretty exact idea of what you mean. Loyal, uh, monogamous, uh, supportive, all the rest of it. Okay. If Ferdinand is the name of your dog, uh, faithful has a different meaning. It means he'll be there every night and curl up by the fire while you scratch its belly. And if you are very attentive as a trainer, it may even bring you the paper, you know. Good old Ferdinand, so faithful. It could even mean, when I was uh, back in the dark ages when uh, personal computers were just beginning to be manufactured back in the 80s, uh, we had a printer that we were trying to make work and it wouldn't, it was most uncooperative machine. Um, but anyway, we gave it a name, Reginald. <laughs> after the, for the secretary of Thomas Aquinas. Come on, Reginald, you can do it. Whack, we'd hit the machine. Um, every so often it would work, and most often it would not. So we thought maybe giving it the name Reginald was a little too generous. But that, be that as it may, Reginald was our, uh, our printer. So Reginald was faithful. Do you know what I mean? Well, you, you do and you don't. Um, you do when I tell you when you know what Reginald is. You don't when you don't. Okay, God is faithful. What, what about that? You, well, you'd have to know what God is in order to know what it means for him to be faithful. There are analogies, but, but, but the real content of it eludes you. See, this is a... Uh, okay. This is one of the penances or difficulties in, in dealing with God on a cognitive level. We're, we're always saying things about him, but we're never, we don't possess the vision, so we don't know exactly how what we say is true. We say God is good, that means he's desirable. Does that mean like what? Like a Cheetos? Like, like, a, like, like um, a philosophy course? Like a rest at the beach? Uh, what do you mean? Well, he fulfills your desire. Do I know all my desires? Apparently not. We have a desire for God, but we don't know what God is, so we have a desire for what it is we know not. This is actually a source of much of the unhappiness in the world, I think. Um, parenthetically, it, it's um, because it's like a child, you know, uh, wailing. And the mother or father comes up and What's the matter with you here? I mean, come on, come on, Buster. You know, take the baby, you pat him, you walk him. Doesn't do any good. Come on, let's rock you a little bit. Eh, no. All right. How about a ride? In the, how about a ride? Yeah. Are you hungry? Nope, not drinking, not eating. Okay. Uh, do we need to change your diapers? Nope. Is there a pinch, a pen sticking you somewhere? Nope. The baby can't tell you what he wants. Doesn't have words for it. He's just suffering. Well, we have a natural desire to see God, and um, it's not being satisfied, and we don't know what it is. We're like, in a way, the human being is like that child that does not have the words to describe what is wrong or what is missing, see. We know what we know that we want, but we don't know perfectly what it is 
what it is that we want. Okay. All we know is that um, uh, with God, uh, we are summoned by the act of faith to launch ourselves towards that which we know not, that which we know not, even that we desire. It's not just that God is cognitively distant from us. He's also volitionally or affectively distanced from us because we can't really name what it is that we want. We can't even name why it is we want it. It just shows up as restlessness, say, anxiety. So the, the, being, if we're, and if we are going to know God, to know what he is, we ha- that is strictly supernatural. We have to be drawn out of our capacities in a kind of noetic crucifixion. Why? Uh, because the direct object of our minds is material being. It's our starting point. God isn't material. We can't know him by abstraction, by any sense experience. The only knowledge we can have of him is indirect, by inference. And that doesn't tell us a lot. There is a, uh, there's, did any of you ever see, so it's a funny movie, um, Plan 9 from Outer Space? No? Absolutely. And I, I've, I've always loved that movie. <laughs> the only worse movie was Blessed Margaret of Costello, um, which I don't urge that you see. Um, anyway. Plan 9 from Outer Space has um, a scene where a guy in this graveyard is lying down and a knife is in his back. And uh, the police inspector comes up. It was Thor Johnson, one of the Swedish wrestler. He comes up and he's puffing on his pipe and he looks at the body with the knife in his back and he says, Huh! Someone's dead! Been murdered! Well, one thing's for sure. Someone's responsible. <laughs> okay. Well, we look at this universe and we say, ha, huh, someone's responsible. It doesn't tell you what that person is. It tells you something by negation, but not, by, but not much by positive content. We, we, if we know all we know is by abstraction and by inference, then our knowledge of the first cause is very poor. Now, why is this? Um, it's because God is what we call essay subsistence. One whose essence is to exist without a limit. This being that whose essence is simply to be cannot receive existence from anyone else. And it's pure, as I say, pure existence and without limitation. That means that he's simple, absolutely simple. Whatever God is, he's not composed. So what difference does that make? Well, the difference is that our minds are incurably syntactical. We know by proposition, A we say is B. We divide. The only way we can know cognitively is by distinguishing, dividing, and then joining subject and object by predicate. We need division and complexity uh, or or composition to function cognitively. 
So that means that our, we cannot wrap our minds around pure simplicity. Philosophically, we know God is that, but we cannot conceive of what that would be. Being without parts is negative knowledge, not positive knowledge. What would it be to be without parts? We, we can't, we don't know. Our minds are syntactical, so we can't make propositions that directly reflect that. Okay. Now, it is one thing um, for an abstraction to be elusive, um, but what about the, the how, but how does all this work when we apply it to knowing the divine life and faith? Well, our minds, when it, when it comes to knowledge of faith, are uh, hampered and must struggle. Um, why is that? Why is faith always a kind of darkness and struggle for us? Well, remember there's a difference that exists between a concept and the reality it represents. There's a difference between what a person uh, possesses in the act of knowing and the reality which he possesses in the act of love. I know you cognitively when I know your name, I know your nature, I know history with you, I know, uh, I know a lot about you and you know a lot about me. Uh, but that's factual knowledge. That's accurate so far as it goes, but it's incomplete. Um, but our knowledge, especially our personal knowledge, isn't really knowledge until it bursts forth into love. So you have spouses. Uh, and here you need to, uh, to go imagine a, um, a conversation between a couple on their 50th wedding anniversary. They're having dinner. One looks at the other and says, Oh, you married me 50 years ago. Why do you love me? If you are ever in that situation, on peril of your soul, do not offer a reason. <laughs> I mean, think about the implications of offering a reason. Well, darling, uh, what, the reason I really love you is, you know, your nose. It... Um, really reminds me of Cleopatra. You know, they say Anthony lost his mind over Cleopatra because of the shape of her nose, and I just feel Mark Anthony-like today, okay? It's your nose. Or it's your, the endowment you got from your parents. I mean, that's <laughs> seen us through many a difficult day, and I just really thank God for it every day of my life. Or I love, I love the fact that you, when you went on that SlimFast diet, you stuck to it. I mean, after, <laughs> after all these years and your shape is still upheadable, you know? Which is a very important part of human fulfillment, if you didn't know that. Okay, so good, all right. Yeah, um, or uh, I love the fact that you laugh at all my jokes and, uh, and never interrupt me and never really disagree with me publicly. <laughs> <laughs> that, these, are, uh, these are answers guaranteed to kill love, right? Because you've offered a reason. And remember, the mind and the will work differently. The mind assimilates and takes things in, but the will goes out. And so 
Whenever there's any real love and knowledge of another person that's interpersonal, it involves not just cognitive abstraction, it involves uh, where you take in, it also involves you as you go out to, see? And that, that takes you beyond the range of your mind. That's why a sensible person says, I don't know why I love you, I just do. See, that's the only good answer, because love takes you beyond your ideas about the thing that you love. I mean, this, this is true for the highest human realities. It's also true for even mundane realities. You know, uh, you can never give a full account of what you like. You can't make that entirely reasonable because your will doesn't function like your reason. Your desire doesn't function like your reason. Just as in God, knowledge, God utters himself in an act of self-knowledge and and loves himself in the procession of the spirit. And, but the two processions are different in the one God. So we know and love, and the processions are different, but they're united in the one person, the one human person. So even though we can... Um, so it's love, really, that bridges the gap between our ideas about God, or for that matter, ideas about another human person, and, uh, and the reality itself. Love provides the bridge between the object known conceptually and the object known extramentally, and really where there is, in fact, that a union affected. So this means, I mean, if we, have, if we say to our spouse, why do I love you? I don't know. Uh, the same thing, in a way, would be true of God. Um, our desire for and love for God would outstrip the resources of our reason. And if there's anything a reasonable person hates, it's not being in control of the reasons, particularly when those reasons determine your whole life, you know, particularly when those reasons count and a great deal is at stake, you know. Okay. Um, now, I'll do more on this tomorrow, but when Christian believers uh, assent to the truth that Jesus is their Savior, uh, that going out, both taking in conceptually and going out volitionally, that kokola, that Jesus is the Savior, that proposition unites you personally to the one who Jesus is conceptually, and it uh, also unites you to him volitionally or by desire or by aspiration, you see. And so you have a, some idea of who he is, but you go out in your love towards him with something that leaves your ideas behind. Now, this doesn't mean that we can leave our concepts behind. The concepts that we have uh, and that are true enable us to use them instrumentally to reach out through them and beyond them to touch the Savior himself. You see, we, we have true ideas about God. He's simple, he's triune, he's sent the Son to save us. All of these things are true. Uh, our minds lay hold of them, even though we don't know entirely what they mean. We still, we take them in, and still propelled by them, we reach out and are propelled beyond the concepts, and yet the concepts remain ever important, and therefore must be uh, understood or, or thought with to be understood. I have a question for you. Um, 
And I, this one I, I, I myself am puzzled by. I don't really have an, the answer because there are excellent arguments on both sides. But let me pose the question. Do we and Muslims worship the same God? I don't know. I mean, it, I mean there are, there are, here are a couple of reasons to say yes, we do. Uh, they call God Almighty. How many people running around out there are Almighty? Not many, just one. Uh, they call God radically simple. How many candidates for the post of being radically simple are there? One. Uh, that you couldn't be referring to more than one, right? So when they call God Almighty, how many creators of the world are there? There's one. How many judges of the world are there? There's one. See, the singularity of the divinity means uh, if there's only one God and we pray to the one God and they pray to the one God, we must be praying to the same God. All right, so that's an argument for one side. The exclusive properties that we both appeal to and identifying God of uh, the, on the other side of this is a little detail, a little person named Jesus. Okay. We say he's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, they say that's blasphemy. God has no sons. We say, they say he's more than, he's a prophet, a pretty impressive prophet, but still a prophet. We say, well, he's a prophet, but that is the least of his attributes. He is uh, the, uh, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Pantocrator, blasphemy, Pantocrator, blasphemy. Do we worship the same God when we, when we are in disagreement about such a fundamental thing? The answer there seems to be no. Point is, it makes a difference. Because suppose, um, suppose I am an eager young uh, comparative religion student, and I want to identify with all sides and hot controversies, I, I will then say I want to uh, incorporate all of these different traits of God into my own God that I worship. So with the, with the Muslims, I will say God is one and that Muhammad is the last and greatest prophet. With the Christians, I will say that uh, God the Father has a son, Jesus, whom he sent to be the Savior of the world. And with the Mormons, I will say God has promised to give me my own planet at the end of my death, at, the, at my death. I don't know what I'd do with a planet anyway, particularly one of those big gaseous balls, kind of a useless present as far as I can tell. Anyway. Um, but is that is uh, am I worshiping the real God then? No, there's no such God. You see, uh, uh, you can understand why people would accuse us of blasphemy by worshiping or idolatry, worshiping something that isn't real. No, that's why that's really the function of apologetic or theological argument. It's not that it can establish that God is real or that He loves us or that He wants us to be saved. But it can get rid of the junk. You see, it's uh, the mind has an ascetical function in faith by serving as sort of a filter. You know, where falsehood is purified, where you get rid of things that uh, would, uh, in fact, have you worshiping something that isn't God. Conceptual precision here can keep you from worshiping an illusion. See the see what's at stake. That's why it makes a difference to say at, when we're talking about divine attributes to ask if God is one 
if he's three, if he's just, if he's simple, if, you know, all of these different properties of God do matter uh, on pain of worshiping an idol. And that's one of the purifying functions of, of, um, of reason in, or uh, exercised in faith as a kind of ascetical exercise. All right, there's another reason for faith's restlessness. Okay, I, I think I will just very quickly. Uh, the, uh, the, the other reason that faith is a, a bit restless is that we simply supply no external conclusive evidence for the truth. We say we stake our lives on something being true, and we can't demonstrate it. We believe it. That's all we do. We believe it. We think it's credible, but there's a gap between evidence and commitment that we can't surmount, and that if we have any sense at all, is bound to make us nervous. We, uh, people generally like to have some control over their life commitments, or at least some guarantee that it's true. We have some reasons that encourage us to think it's true, but those reasons are never enough for faith. Only divine testimony can do it. Okay. Finally. Uh, we are on the way to heaven, we hope, we believe. There's a pledge of future glory, but we don't know what heaven will look like. So the journey, as we are on it, is bound to look a little bit pointless to us. Or at least the point of much of what we go through is not going to be apparent. And so we will be, until we arrive at the homeland, we will be restless and wondering in the deepest part of our soul, does God really know what he's doing? Uh, we believe that he does, but until we see him, it remains a belief. That is hard. That is ascetical. Okay? So that's why faith is, uh, is a, uh, uh, not just a, a calm, passionless belief, but also a bit of a struggle for anyone who really is alive in their faith. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your lecture. Um, I was wondering, uh, when you first talked about um, knowing God, the, the first difficulty you mentioned was that the um, kind of first object of our intellect is material things, and mm -hmm. God is immaterial. Um, so I was wondering, and then you talked about how God is like absolutely simple and that provides kind of an additional challenge. But I was wondering how that would apply with, um, if we were to know, uh, like the angelic nature or something like that. Oh, we can't know angels either. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. No, sorry, I wish we did. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, uh, we can't. Uh, see, it's an interesting thing. Each angel, we say, exhausts its own species. Uh, each angel is one of a kind. Um, as, uh, as Walter Farrell said, each angel is as different from another angel as a diamond is from a woman. Or from an oak tree. I mean, those are very different kinds of being. Each angel is a very different kind of being. But the only way we know th what things are is through sense knowledge and abstracted from that. Our senses have got nothing to work with with angels. Uh, so we don't get, you know, we know they have minds and wills, but even, I know this is a, a speculation of mine and therefore I wouldn't hold to it too tightly. But it seems reasonable to me to say that if each angelic, each angel is different to that degree, then the modes of their rationality and volition would also be different. See, powers come from a nature. If each nature is different, then, intel then intelligence and freedom would look differently in each angel. 
Uh, so even then, when we say we have, they're at least spiritual, non-material, and they're intelligent free, that's true. But it's one more instance of something we know or believe to be true, but don't know how it's true. So angels are an enigma to us for some of the same reasons that God is. Um, sorry, just follow up that. Um, does, does the fact that God is the absolute symbol, is that kind of an additional challenge over and above? Because with angels, they're not. They're not simple. Way. No, no, no. They're yeah. not simple. They are. They're at least they. Their essence is different from their existence. Their existence isn't self-explanatory, right? So they require an explanation in a way that God does not. But that's true for all of them, and it doesn't tell us very much. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. I really enjoyed the um, the sort of in-depth uh, background into uh, what faith is. And nowadays, one thing that many people, or many skeptics say is, um, you know, they, they attack the, the idea of faith as being completely separate from reason, and uh, you know, the, the two are completely incompatible. And you know, when people say, well, faith is, uh, you know, we view faith differently, they, they sort of push back and say, well, you, what you're really describing seems to be just another form of reason. What in the framework that you described um, sets faith apart from reason uh, in that context? Well, okay. Um, that's a good question. Um, faith, faith works much like reason. If you start from premises and you reach conclusions, uh, there's the same uh, syntactical pattern to human reasoning. It much as it, that's different. It's the what is different is that we believe that at a judgment of faith, the will is moved not by the evidence that is offered, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit. There is a a motion from God which uh, at which humanly moves us to accept this. Um, now, th this is called in the in the Thomistic tradition. Uh, the, the psychological process would be uh, confronting the uh, pious uh, affect of credibility. All right, let me let me see what that's uh, much of the same. Much of it's this kind of reasoning. You go out into the sunset and you say, "What a beautiful world! It's ordered. God must be behind it." Or Kant, you know, uh, you might say that the idea of God is necessary for there to be moral order, if you know. Or we need the idea of the immortality of the soul to make sense of our moral life. Okay, you can say these things, and they don't really prove or demonstrate God, but they are a desirable feature of the world that fits in uh, and is explained best by God, and that is your motivation humanly until the time when grace takes over and you no longer believe because there's order in the world or that religion ought to make sense or that religion improves people's moral character. But you, you abandon those reasons and simply say, God has revealed this, I accept it as true. Because the testimony, responding to divine truthfulness as such rather than responding to argument, 
that accounts for the act of faith. Does that make does that help? Yes. The motive for the act of faith is different. Um, insufficient at first, but a, an actual grace nudging your reason along these lines until the moment of surrender when you say, I know you have told this to me and I believe it because you have said so. That's great, thank you. Hi, uh, thanks for your talk. Uh, I was wondering about, um, so my memory of, uh, I think question one in the treatise on faith is that he says that um, God is the formal object of yes. faith, right? Meaning like he's the sort, he's sort of the medium or um, that through which we believe all the things that we believe. That's right. Materially. Um, I was wondering um, how to interpret that claim. Uh, I guess that's sort of outside the scope of the talk, but just since God's testimony is supposed to be the, the, the justification for our believing, you know, different doctrines. Um, uh, I was wondering, you know, does Aquinas think that, uh, is, is, he, is he like a foundationalist about this? Does he think that um, that we need to justify our believing God's testimony itself, or, or how does he? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, he would. That's a, that's really an excellent question. Um, I, I finally, fi at first, there's what the pious effect of you know um, cred uh, credibility, where reasons are offered, and they are providentially designed to point us in the right direction, but there must come a point where uh, there is a kind of luminous uh, realization that uh, God has spoken and that that is the reason to affirm. See, uh, it's, it's when, it's when um, and this comes with the infusion of charity too, where charity is the, you know, the perfection of faith, where, where you simultaneously believe that what God has said is true and love him as the source of all good. Um, so there is, a, I think he would say that no reason outside of God will constitute a, uh, an act of faith. See? Uh, so people who say I'm religious because it helps make good citizens uh, haven't really achieved faith. They've gotten faith when in one way or another they are convinced they've been spoken to by God, either personally or through the tradition, uh, in the body of the church, through the gifts of the sacraments, you know. But there has been a divine encounter that you are responding to. Without that encounter and acceptance of its implications, there is no faith. There is simply philosophical knowledge or opinion, none of which can save because none of which can take us outside of ourselves in the way that faith can. Yeah, just a quick follow-up if I, if I can. Uh, so I probably just don't understand this stuff about charity well enough then, but uh, but I was wondering if faith is supposed to be distinguished from you know, the beatific vision, the final uh, knowledge of God by being, you know, uh, it's not sight, right? It's faith, right. sight. Um, but then we say that, you know, the, the things that we believe are based on an encounter with God. Um, that sounds kind of like sight, right? I mean, or sorry, what, 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 is, what is this encounter with God, this, this vision that is... There, it's, 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 it's a little mysterious. Hans Urs von Balthasar goes in this direction when he talks about, you know, um, 
there is a way in which God appears as light in the, in the scriptures and in the lives of the saints. It's not the kind of light that is incontestable. It can be refused, but it's definitely an inclination and a participation in something more than human surmise. It's not sight in that it's not definitively sight. It's not, it doesn't steal all your desire. It's a transient grace that comes and it goes, but it's sufficient, you see. It's not, it's not the unveiled vision. It's, it's the, what you might call a shekinah in propositional form, a, a, a divine dwelling in the disguise of an idea. That's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Father. Um, so my question is, uh, if so you mentioned the way we think our minds are syntactical, and so uh, we can only understand God by inference. Um, so if that applies to our language as well, in heaven with our glorified bodies, will we be able to discuss God and the mysteries inaccessible to us on this side of heaven? in the languages that we use now, or we have another language? Or? I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. I could make stuff up, but I just don't know. I was wondering about, you asked, or you said that we don't, um, we can't know God, we can't see God, um, and it, we, we find him through kind of uh, backwards inference in a way. Um, so how does that apply then to Christ coming in the form of a man. Because obviously the apostles could see him, feel him, touch him, even with the Eucharist itself, which is God. If we can receive that physically, is that not a positive finding of God? Well, through the veil of the sacrament, yes. It's truly God that you are uh, you are in touch with. Uh, but it's not seen. And when, when, even, even when you have the resurrection and Thomas uh, is in front of the risen Lord, uh, Jesus says, um, well, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Uh, that was an act of faith. Why? Why did Jesus praise him for believing when in fact Jesus was evident to him? Because it was what was evident to him was the risen body of Christ. It was there's a gap between that and saying Jesus is God. See, saying he's raised from the dead. Well, I mean it, it's suggestive. It's rich. It's powerful. It means the end of the ages is upon you and all of that. But it doesn't equal he's God. And Thomas is willing to go beyond and say what he didn't see. That. So Thomas is so, and I think that if that's true for the risen body of the Lord, it's also true for however high our mystical experiences may go. Uh, it's truly God we're in touch with, and the Holy Spirit moves our will to say that it is the whole, that God that we are in touch with, right? And it, it, we make these true judgments under the inspiration of the Spirit, but that does not amount to the rending of the veil, so that we see. God as he is in himself. He appears to us through created veils. We know it's him, but we know there's more to come. So we, uh, we say that we love God um, because he's all good. Uh, sometimes we say this. And that sounds like 
like a reason uh, to love God. And so I'm wondering, is this uh, a negative claim? Like we would affirm that God is without parts or symbol. Um, and if that is the case, then do we love God from a kind of um, uncertain or vague knowledge? And does that jeopardize the love? I'm sorry, that was a string of questions that were all kind of related, but um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, we love God. Um, uh, well, there's a distinction between loving God for our sake and loving God for his sake. Uh, when we love God for our sake, it's because we perceive him as good for us, you know. And that belongs to the theological virtue of hope, right? Uh, we hope for eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins, life everlasting. God has said he's willing to do all of that for us, and so we, we hope in him because he can do what we cannot. Charity, on the other hand, is where you love God for God's own sake. And um, now remember, charity works differently. Uh, it moves you out. It doesn't take in. It moves you out towards. And if there's kind of an ecstatic, post-reasonable quality to human love, there certainly is going to be a, an ecstatic, post-reasonable quality to loving God because God is infinitely good. It's enough to get us flying, but it's not enough to bring us to a complete term. Uh, we know that God is the source of all good. We know he's good because he is des supremely desirable. We don't know what that is in itself yet, but, um, but we will. And in the meantime, it's enough to keep us moving. Sorry, just a quick question. So, um, going back to habitus, would you say concupiscence is a habitus? Depends on how you use the word. Uh, there are several uh, meanings uh, to concupiscence. Uh, uh, as a, as broadly, as the name of a kind of passion, it just means uh, unconflicted desire, you know, or unconflicted appetite, I should say, moving either having a relationship to something that's good or desiring something that's good or rejoicing in the presence of something that's good, okay? Or conversely, fleeing evil, unproblematically saying, I'm out of town here, you know, without any inward struggle, maybe I should stay. No, no, if you've got a concupiscible flight, you're just out without any, comp uh, without any competition. It can also, concupiscence can also mean disordered sensual desire, you know, or what St. Paul means, living according to the flesh. I would say that, that, that that's a good question. I would see what you think, Father Donald, Father John. I would put that on the level of an entitative habit. Would you agree? Would, does that make sense? I mean, concupiscence as, a, as, a, as what St. Paul means by the, by living according to the flesh, it's not a particular bad habit. It's an overall orientation of the self towards destruction through self-gratification. I'm trying to remember exactly how Aquinas puts this, but he talks about it as a, an effect of original sin. Oh, yeah, the fome is, oh, yes, fome yeah, so is. That, that is a kind of, it's like a, it's like a habit, but it's actually it's privation, I think. Okay. Uh, the kindlings of sin, I think, is yeah. one translation. I, Fomes concupiscence. I remember he uses habit there when he talks about that. Maybe Adam does. Thank you, Father. Um, I wanted to ask about how the active faith is possible in baptism, particularly with you know young children. When we say that that faith will no longer infused in the soul when the soul is baptized, 
and yet faith is also an, an act of the will insofar as an assent of the will to a truth revealed by God. Yeah, the answer to that is that it's a disposition to move. A habitus is a disposition to move and to act. Uh, it doesn't necessarily imply that you move and to act immediately. So uh, when you have received an infused habitus of faith, it means that when your reason awakens and you're able to choose and think, that there will be a predisposition to move towards God on a cognitive and effective level. So I, th I think that's what it is. It's by anticipation. You aren't yet acting on the virtue of faith, but you do have the capacity to in a way you didn't before and a readiness to when the proper circumstances are present. Do you see that the scales are tipped in that direction? Absolutely, yeah.